Hi, welcome to In the Pacha, where I, Sam Reinstein, Rabbi Congregation Kol Israel in Brooklyn, have conversations with different educators about the weekly Torah portion. This week, I'm with Dan Margulies. Hey, Dan. Hi, Sam. How are you? Doing great this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say it's it's such a great project you you've started here and it's wonderful to be able to be a part of it. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to nail people down, so thank you for being flexible. For sure, flexible is is my middle name. <laughs> um, so I actually um, have never met you in person, but I feel like I feel like we've known each other for a long time because uh, there aren't so many uh, rabbis who are. Bo- Boy Scouts for a long time, let alone Eagle Scouts. So uh, um, would you mind introducing yourself to everyone? For sure. So my name is Dan Margulies. I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. I am, as Sam mentioned, an Eagle Scout, and I have years of experience being involved in Jewish Scouting. So that's a passion of mine, though I'm not particularly active in it now. I'm currently the rabbi of the Riverdale Minion in Riverdale in the Bronx. I recently started that job just a few months ago. Uh, which is a, a nice medium-sized shul. We're, we're doing very well. We're really enjoying the new position. And I'm really excited to teach Torah on a lot of different platforms. I try to be relatively active in social media and different things. I write for the recently resuscitated Orthodoxy blog, and I have a couple of articles that have been published on the Lair House as well. So check those out if you're interested. Cool, cool. Right. Um, I live in Riverdale. Wanna- do you want to explain what uh, the More Orthodoxy blog is? Sure. The More Orthodoxy blog used to be a, a blog, and it lapsed for a few years. It was recently uh, resuscitated with a new group of writers as a project of the International Rabbinic Fellowship. So it's really just an opportunity for myself and a few you know, much more experienced and much more interesting colleagues of mine to, <laughs> to write on about a, each of us about once a month different topics of, of interest and somewhat current events, somewhat Torah, somewhat Russian material. It's sort of a range of different things. Hopefully in the f- next few weeks, I'm going to have a review of the new RCA door coming out there. So that should be something to keep your eyes open for. Great. Awesome. Um, so every, every week I try and do a, a very quick summary of the Parsha. Uh, normally I say 30 seconds, but again, just like last week um, when it's all, um, a story. It's very hard to do that because you can't just like leave out details because if you leave out details, it doesn't make sense anymore. Um, so I'll try and do it quickly, um, hopefully under a minute. That's the, that's the goal. Uh, so, so Paro, the king of Egypt, has two dreams. That seven thin cows eat seven fat cows and that seven healthy grains are eaten by seven thin grains. No one is able to explain the meaning of the dreams to Paro. The butler tells Paro of Yosef, who explained his dreams in jail, and Paro sends for him. Yosef interprets the dreams that would be seven great years and seven bad years uh, economically, and Paro accepts the interpretation and is pressed by Yosef. Yosef is appointed second in command and oversees the surplus, making Egypt flourish. He gets married to Osnat and Ephraim and Menashe. In the bad times, Egypt has food, but Yaakov and the family need grain, so the tel- ten eldest sons are sent to get, that, to get it. Yosef imprisons his son, saying his brother, saying they're spies. After three days, he lets them out, except for Shimon, and demands he, they bring back his, his youngest brother, Benjamin. 
they go back and get him despite Yaakov's reservations. As they leave with food, Yosef sticks a goblet in Benjamin's sack and accuses him of stealing it, demanding he stay as a slave. And then it ends in this uh, in this big... Uh, um, yeah, it's one like of the best ten. cliffhangers. Yeah, it's a great cliffhanger where all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Even though um, like we kind of know the story, um, but at least well, the I first like time... Part of the great joy of the Parsha for me is is trying to read the stories every year with the excitement of not, as if pretending that we don't know how they're going to resolve it. So right. the should always try to be made as dramatic as possible. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sometimes hard to do that. I, I once watched uh, Miracle. I don't know if you remember that movie, which is about the hockey, uh, one, like, right? the hockey one where, uh, where like the Americans are able to be the Russians during the Cold War. And I watched it with my mother and she's all nervous and nervous. I'm like, <laughs> we know, we know, we know how this ends. Like, you know, who's going to win. Don't worry about it. But still, you know, there's still some excitement. Hopefully, hopefully there's some excitement going into the, into these well, that's, that's the same as every, every movie or every TV show where almost without exception, the protagonist will end out on top at the end. Right. The drama True. still comes from investing yourself in the story. So right. I think it's yeah. a if only we could for the Torah. Sit at Torah reading every week and, and feel that. Alibi. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear there's just a lot going on for this parsha. So I'd love to hear um, <laughs> what what uh, what you wanted to focus on. For sure. So I'm gonna give a little bit of a background that that was why I was interested in this question, which is that a few months ago I prepared uh, a source sheet for a set of shirim as part of actually one of my previous jobs when I was working as the co-director of community education at Yeshivat Chavavay Torah. We had this community learning program where we would provide uh, source sheets for different communities around the country. And one of the topics I was exploring was how subjective the process of Nibuah is. That is, how does every prophet receive their prophecy translated into words process it, write it down, and how much is that uh, variable based on the personality or upbringing or education of the individual prophet. So there's a fantastic uh, piece from our Barbanel's introduction to the book of Jeremiah, where he goes in great length and he argues that actually prophecy really is subjective to that extent. And Yirmiyahu, who grew up in the country and was less educated, that's why the grammar in the book of Yirmiyahu is a little bit off and his uh, mm. poetry isn't as sharp and things like that. So that was a very interesting exploration. And Malbim really takes him to task and totally disagrees and says, no, 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 no. When God speaks to prophets, it's totally with clarity and clo- totally precise and the prophets don't get to play any part in it. And so that got me thinking about the character of Yosef. How much yeah. does Yosef... How does he come to understand his role as an interpreter of the dreams? And and how does that process actually work? Because I don't think, you can correct me if, I, if you think I'm wrong, but I don't think we think of Yosef as really a prophetic character. It's not that the interpretations of the dreams are told to him by God. It's that he can figure it out. He has some skill or talent that he's been gifted with to be able right. to understand and interpret the dreams. I mean, he does say, like, um, I'm looking for it now. Yosef does say, like, it's, you know, God told me. Um, well, he says, Halo Leilohim Pitronim, which, which yeah. you could sort of read either way, right? Oh, that it's, it's either 
God, uh, I was, I'm smart enough to do this, or is that what you mean? Right. Well, it's it's God ensures that the dreams are interpreted in a way that they'll come true, right? It's sort of this circular process because the dreams right. only end up coming true if God makes it that way. Or so there, it's right. certainly worth unpacking. But what I was interested in then is is really the the crux of what makes Yosef successful in both of his dream interpretation moments and probably applies to his first dream as well, right? All three episodes with Yosef in dreams, the first two at the beginning of last week's Parsha, the dreams that he has, the two at the end of last week's Parsha, the, the dreams of the, the butler and the baker, and then this week with Paro's two dreams, each of those three episodes, the success of Yosef's interpretation hinges on his ability to see the two dreams as operating in tandem. Right. And, and that, he even says that explicitly when he's telling Paro, he says, Chalom Paro, Chalom Echadhu. It's one dream. And it seems like many of the Mefarshi note that one of the earliest sources I saw was that there's a Midrash in the collection, say, Chaltov, that says that. The chalom shel hashibolim perusho shel parot. The, the the second dream, the dream about the the wheat stalks, provides the basis for Yosef to be able to interpret the first dream, and that's picked up on by some of the later mefarshim. Tziv talks about this. Abarbanel talks about this. Forno talks about it. That the chartumim paro's uh, magicians all thought that the two dreams should be interpreted independently. I think to us seems kind of silly because we read these two dreams and they seem so similar to us, right? right? I mean, it's but, it's it's almost it's they're almost the same dream, right? It's just with like, a it's slightly just, different symbolism. One's with wheat, one's with cows, but right. Or one is with uh, birds eating the bread, and one is with uh, squeezing the grapes. Or one is right. with stars, and one is with sheaves of wheat. So every one of the pa- couplets of dreams. When you see them juxtaposed, you think, yeah, those are basically the same. And the difference, of course, with the, with the butler and the baker is that the outcome is reversed. The butler is successful and the baker is executed. So oh, interesting. That's so expanding the difference. Past Paro, right? For the butler right. and the baker, there's also two dreams right. and he connects them. And also with the, when he has his dreams at the beginning of the story, there are two dreams and he connects them as also. Seemingly. Right. And, and again, there may be subtle differences between them and, and that's maybe a topic for another time. But here, what's, what's so interesting about it, it sounds like the, the Khartoumim, the magician said, okay, each of these two dreams operates independently. And Yosef's success in his interpretation comes from seeing them together. Um, Beyond that, I, it's, I think it's an interesting kernel of an idea. I'm not exactly sure where it goes. I mean, one way to say is like, okay, fine. So it's obvious to us too. So we should be just as great at dream interpretation as Yosef. I don't think it works like that. I think, you know, one direction you can go in is to say he's able to have sort of a broader vision or a broader viewpoint than the Khartoumim who see everything kind of more atomized or more isolated experiences. Uh, right. What do you have to say about that? Any thoughts? Right. Yeah. I mean, you got me thinking um, about like just um, probably the Paro's servants, um, you know, when they hear a dream, they feel really pressured to like give an answer, give an explanation for it, um, like kind of like a short term explanation for it. And then they hear another dream and they feel like they have to give an explanation for it um, and aren't giving like larger context to it. 
Um, and it's really hard for people um, to kind of step back and say, you know, what's what makes sense long, like what what makes sense big picture, what makes sense overall. Uh, and Yosef is able to right. do that. Right, Yosef is as an independent contractor. He's an outsider. I mean, this is sort of this is like the Rousseau idea about society is also right that outsiders have a different insight mm-hmm. into into what are the failings or what are the successes or what are the right. how to change things. So here, to Yosef as the outsider is able to appreciate the situation of what Paro's dreams are like very differently. You can imagine I mean, Paro picks him as a second in command, presumably because. He's he's correct, but also presumably because Paro appreciates the kind of answer he can give. It may be Paro is surrounded himself by yes men, and that Yosef right. is able to speak truth to power, is able to question the the status quo in a way that the Khartoumim were un, unwilling to do. I mean, you imagine right. the Egyptian society that the fertility of the Nile is something which is so taken for granted and so at the core of, of both Paro's royal function and also of the whole uh, caste system. And so Paro can't even imagine a reality of seven straight years of famine. And Yosef is able to tell him, tell him that and speak truth to power and then propose a solution, which I think is the second key detail of Yosef's success in his interpretation of dreams. But I think he learns over time is... It's one thing to have a dream, and it's another thing to be able to take the steps to put that dream into motion and make it a reality. Right. Because so, so, like, it's so, so often people either complain or, like, have ideas of issues that, that occur, but don't come also with a solution. Um, right. If every, you know, if every blog post arguing about something bad in the Jewish community came with a solution to it. Um, the world might be slightly different. Uh, right. You, you identify again. the problem and propose a solution in the same, in the same article already. That, right. You know, but often those kinds of, you know, the problem with those kinds of suggestions often is that they're too short-sighted. You, you have to right. take enough time to identify a problem, reflect on it, explore it further, research it, and then, develop an answer so we were not all as gifted as Yosef in that regard right but I think and it, that yeah yeah it make, it also makes me think of of like companies the companies that have to deal with like their stock price I know this is a little financial but um <laughs> but part of the problem with with companies in the stock market is that this the stock market will reflect like short-term decisions um oh. and may not always reflect long-term decisions so sometimes it's incentivizing for companies to make to do what makes sense in the moment, even if they know it doesn't make sense long term, um, and that can actually cause a that can cause a problem in in the market and possibly is what's happening right now with all the fluctuation in the market. Um, but uh, you know, it's the companies that are able to get past that really have long term success, even if they don't have as great short-term success in any moment. Well, I mean, that's kind of, that's what, difficult. I'd be excited to hear what kinds of uh, financial insights you have, especially into next week's Parsha, all of the 
the market share and, and price yeah. calculations and all of that, how Yosef is able to capitalize on the situation. So, so it's actually, I'm, I'm really excited because uh, um, every, I started a thing in my shul a couple months ago um, where uh, different community members are, you know, experts in different fields. Uh, so like they know a lot, they might not know as much Torah, uh, but they know a lot about something else. Uh, so there's somebody that's in a, like a PhD, he's an economist, um, and he works in a, as an economist. And so he's actually talking about that next week at Shul, oh, wonderful. Uh, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, so I'm excited to hear from somebody who like really knows <laughs> what's going on there, like why Yosef does what he does and what that means. Um, that'll be cool. It's, it's, I always feel bad that it's, it's so it's a rigged system. Right? He starts off by taxing everybody, and then he sells them back the taxes at an inflated price, and it's just it's this vicious cycle. But that's you know that'll be right. for next week. Um, the right. other I, and the, you can yeah. talk about the morals of that. But well, of yeah, course, exactly. Of that's course, capitalize on that kind of a situation, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and then it results obviously in everyone being enslaved, which probably is not such a good uh, <laughs> such a good outcome. Um, the yeah. other direction <laughs> that I wanted to take this in, which I think fits into the narrative so well, is that I think it's almost like this is such a turning point for Yosef, the beginning of this week's Parsha, which obviously plays into the end of the Parsha and the rest of next week's Parsha, is that Yosef, in discovering how to act on his dream or act to act on Paro's dream to make it a reality, to ensure that it unfolds the way he predicted, which again, kind of circular, right? You predict a certain outcome and then you take steps to ensure that that's the outcome. Right. That becomes the lens that he uses to interpret the dreams that he had years earlier when he was, when he was a kid. That is now he understands, oh, I need to actually take steps to ensure that my brothers and my father come down and end up right. bowing to me. So that gives him the template of the manipulation and the the whole game that unfolds throughout this Parsha, which is I have to get my brothers down here. I have to figure out how to convince my father to come down. I have to get all 11 brothers down. And it has to be that they don't really know who I am yet until they come down. And actually with Yaakov, it's a little bit different because Yaakov knows that it's his son when he's coming to meet him and he bows to him anyway. Or maybe, I forget actually, does he end up bowing or not? Um, so that may be the one difference. Um, but in general, orchestrating that whole plan is Yosef saying, oh, I had a dream. It had a prophetic kernel that there was something which was going to come true. But it's not just enough to say it predicted something that was going to come true. You actually have to act on it and you have to. So maybe that's the, that's the you know, Torah line for, for what I'm trying to say is, you know, there's one thing to have a prophecy. There's one thing to have a vision or a dream. And it's another thing to be able to say, these are the steps I have to take to ensure that it comes true. And that's in Somchin Alanes, and that's, you know, having the Hishtadlis to be able to commit yourself to ensuring a certain outcome and ensuring, even if you believe in God's blessing, even if you believe you're going to be protected under a certain circumstance or whatever it is, you still have to take realistic, active steps in your life to make sure that that happens. Right. Interesting. And I feel like, uh, on some level, I feel like that's the. I know. I know. It's. It just happens to be Hanukkah, right? So <laughs> just so happens. Um, yeah, but I feel like I feel like that's a big message, not just of the Yosef story, 
I mean, I feel like that's the big connection between the Yosef story and the Hanukkah story. Hundred um, percent is like there's these two miracles that uh, that happen simultaneously, and you know the Maccabees still had to do their fighting, or they wouldn't have won. Uh, but at the same time, they wouldn't have been able to light the menorah the whole time. So right, and the the big question that the Maccabees had to face, halachic question, and you know sort of as if a moral question is, should we light, uh, should, should we fight on Shabbat or not? And the whole questions right. of uh, pikuach nefesh overriding Shabbat and warfare on Shabbat that comes up in the Book of Maccabees and discussed in the Gemara and Yoma and, and in Shabbat, that, that that's exactly that question is, you have faith that God is on your side. You have faith that you're the righteous party in this war. You have faith that you're fighting for everything that's right. At the same time, if you lay down your arms in Shabbat and just set up camp and have a, a Shabbistic Shabbos, your enemies will destroy you because they don't care. And the real world doesn't work that way. And you have to figure out what's the balance between I'm righteous, God is protecting me, God is fighting my war for me, Hashem lachem lachem, and oh, but I actually have to be the one to fight the war. And as a religious person, I mean, this is exactly like what they say about sports players, right? Whenever sports players win, they always say, oh, it was, you know, God, God, you know, granted right. me that I would win the game. And when they lose, they just say, oh, we didn't try hard enough. Right. That's exactly the same kind of mentality, but that's the mentality the religious person has with those kind of circumstances, which is to say, if we win, it was God's will. And it was you know, because we were righteous because God was on our side. And if we lose, it's because we didn't try hard enough and we didn't dedicate ourselves to it and we didn't work hard enough for it. Uh, didn't want it enough, so right. obviously it can be problematic sometimes. But in general, it's a pretty good, pretty good model. Right, but I, and I think you took it like one, that idea just one step further. And just while you're thinking it through, you need to think it through past, like the most obvious, right in your in your face thing. You need to have be thoughtful about it and have context and and not just throw out the first idea that you have and assume that's enough, um, but kind of really think about it. Okay, great. So what was it that you wanted yeah. to talk about? Yeah, so um, it's actually a really good segue um, because there, because Ramban, uh, Nachmanides, um, argues on some level um, <laughs> almost exactly what you just said, but for why Yosef like, keeps everything secret and Yosef like, totally manipulates his brothers. Uh, like, why does, why does he, you know, force them to bring Binyamin down? And when, then when, once they get Binyamin down, why, do they, why does he put a goblet in Binyamin's sack? Like, why does he do all these things and keep everything silent? Um, so Ramban argues, um, very similarly to what you said, um, is that, well, you know, he wanted Ramban. to. <laughs> uh, okay. That, that, that <laughs> he wanted to make his, uh, you know, he wanted to make the dreams happen. Right. Um, the, 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 the problem that I, I, I kind of have with that is, um, and, and a couple of them asked this question, a couple of commentaries asked this question, is like there's no like inherent value. I, like, I don't, I'm not sure what the inherent value in that dream of them bowing down to him is. Um, meaning like... Um, what value. What that what? The, the value is that it was a prediction that Yosef's prophetic or quasi-prophetic intuition was that it would come true. 
Right, but it's not like I guess but what, what happens. Right. What right? What happens in <laughs> Egypt? There's a value in him making sure that there's enough food uh, for right. Egypt, and that so that they're protected for the seven bad years. Right? And not just Egypt, not, the whole world, right? They, I mean, obviously, it's not the whole world, but it's right. It's, you know, the whole but presumably, world. he didn't like create the famine, right? To make sure that it happened, right? What he did was he prepared for it, right? Right, like he had the long view because there's no value in there being a famine. That's not like a good thing for it to happen. He probably would have rather there not be seven bad years. Um, although then he would have seen, uh, you know, presumably Paro would have rather there not have been seven bad years after right. the seven good years. Uh, so, like, well, so I think the climax of that of that realization is in is in Parak Membet of Pesach Zayin. And I, I mentioned this in Shul last week, actually. So I, at the River Dominion, I like to ask a little riddle before Torah reading. And my riddle uh, was about, there's one verb which is particularly crucial in last week's Parsha, in now three Parshiot to go in Parshat um, uh, Vayetze, and also this week, which is lehakir, uh, to recognize. And in our Parsha, it's exactly here in chapter 42, where it's Yosef sees his brothers of Vayaki Reim. He recognizes them. And at that moment is when he hatches the plan. So I hear what you're saying, which is that he didn't orchestrate the famine to do anything for his, against his brothers. He didn't try mm-hmm. to become the head of Egypt. For, like None of that had anything to do with his brothers. That was Yosef being a good guy and trying to make the best of a difficult situation and help you know, the king of the superpower and right. do well for himself. And then right. at that so, moment that he sees his brothers in Egypt, he says, oh, now is my chance. Right. Uh, so that, that's, that's, that's kind of like where I was thinking of possibly going because it's based on, um, based on a Rambam, but it's based on a Gemara in Yoma, um, where the idea essentially in Chuva in repentance, um, is to be in the same situation. The highest level is to be in the same situation and not do it again. Uh, so possibly, like, as you were saying, kind of Yosef is trying to create that same situation again. Where, uh, uh, well, that gives him like, even a second motive, right? The first motive you mentioned from Ramban is he wants to make the dreams come true. This is a different motivation. This is he wants to test his brothers and see if they've changed. Right, but... I guess within this, though, he is making it come true, but with with other motivations, right? So similarly with the famine, right? The he doesn't want there to be seven bad years or seven good years, right? But he's creating the situation that it's good for good for the people involved. I guess in this in that case, just him, except or, the or just yeah. the, <laughs> right, right. Um, but in this case, right, he's just trying to do the same thing again. He's trying to. Um, get his brothers to a place um, where they're doing the right thing um, and kind of coming back um, to where they were all the way the, at the beginning with their, with their brother, Yosef, um, where it's not just for the sake of, like he's making the dream happen, but not for the sake of making the dream happen. You know, he's making the dream happen for the sake of something positive um, and valuable which again and, is what he ends up telling his brothers at, at the end of the whole saga, I guess it's next week, right? Is he says, you planned this all for 
it's the John Kasich uh, line, right? God, you you planned it for evil, but God planned it for good, right? Or whatever it was. Um, I, whenever it comes down to these parshiot, now I'm, it's burning right. in my brain when John Kasich going to Brooklyn and asking the yeshiva guys, like, you guys know about Joseph? Uh, <laughs> that's I think that's you know here it's it's by Iskor Yosef at Chalamod Asher Chalam that that he remembers the dreams that's part of this realization for him so it certainly is connected with his idea about the dreams which is definitely where Ramban is getting it from right and it's in the right. context of his meteoric rise in politics and it's in the context of piecing those all together he sees that his brothers have been brought to Egypt through this global disaster so he says oh let me combine the two right, but Plus i, I do like Chuva. i do, right i do like the idea though that it's bigger um that he's not just making the dreams happen just for the sake of it happening like uh but it but there's a goal in mind and there's a um and he so he's doing something um that's difficult right he's like tricking his brothers a whole bunch of times um but he's doing it for a reason and it's not just for them to bow to him, right. um, but it's for the, it's for them to bow bow to him. But bowing to him is like a very positive thing in this context. Which, um, which you're saying is to to demonstrate that they've changed in their character enough that they yeah. will sell out their younger brother, right? And and, and, so and they do, why, and that's why Binyamin becomes such a central character in the narrative. He's the anti Yosef, or he's Yosef number two. Um, I remember uh, uh, this is something which, if you look at all of Tanakh, it's it's become such a trope, and you're like, oh my gosh! I remember I heard this from Rabbi Weiss at Chovave, which is that the first try always fails, and the second try is always successful. So that's true for the sets of Ten Commandments. The first set of Ten Commandments, Moshe destroys them. The second sure. ones last. The first attempt to enter the land is a failure. They have to wait forty years. They enter the land a second time with Joshua. Great success. The first creation story and the second creation story. The oh. first attempt to, uh, you know, select uh, 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 one man out of humanity uh, is the Noah story, which ends in really much destructive. And then the second attempt with Avraham is, is a great success that we're still part of. So you sort of see that trope throughout. So here too, there was the failure with the selection of Yosef, and then it's redeemed through the story of Binyamin. Uh, but but it's redeemed by the person who then ends, ends up actually being the chosen brother by Yehuda. Right. So that's well, right. and that's all all forecasting all of the politics right. in in you know we have Yehuda and we have Yosef and we have Binyamin, all three of them really playing right. crucial roles in the unfolding politics during the the first temple period. But there's another example, right? Shaul is the first king failed dynasty and the Davidic dynasty is at least you know per perpetually mm. successful with some hiccups here and there interesting um yeah any any other things to add not sure these are such rich parshiot and the characters yeah. are so well you know it's such a rich exploration of the characters and the psychology I feel like Yosef as a character, you can spend, you know, several weeks every year reading this story and always ask the, 
even the same questions that certainly ask new questions. Why did he do it the way he did? What was he really going for? What was he looking right. for? Was he resentful or not? Did he, there are theories about Yosef's relationship with his father. Did he hate his father or not? What, you know, how did Yaakov respond or not? Did Yaakov try to re- look for Yosef or not? You know, did Yosef try to look for Yaakov or not? All of those pieces, the family dynamic is so complex. The characters are so rich. There are so many places in Tanakh where we feel that we're, we don't get enough information about the characters. And here we have so much to work with. And it's always such a joy to be able to study these partiot and get inside the characters' heads and, and explore them that way. Right. Because it also lends itself to so much... Uh, you know, almost guesswork, um, but hopefully, you know, educated guesswork, because uh, obviously we don't really know what's in their heads, but we have the the text and that's what we have to, to go on. For sure. So. No, it's. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say there was one little tidbit, which I li- I'll leave for the listeners to think about, which is all of the episodes throughout throughout this parasha. And I think next week's parasha as well. There's so many references to the donkeys. And I remember I heard, I think it was one of these Eli talks once, um, where it was someone who was speaking about, you know, minorities in, in, in the Talmud or something like that. And that sort of like, just similar to the, if, if the only tool you have, every problem looks like an, is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. It's like, right. if, if you're the donkey reading the story, you're, your most interesting character in the story is always going to be the donkey. So, one thing I'm interested in is, oh, well, the, here the Torah uses seemingly re- almost redundantly to refer to the donkeys numerous times throughout the story as if they're important and they're not. They don't seem to be important. The, the brothers' donkeys as they're going right, down they're, and coming they're down. They're worrying about the donkeys getting taken to be slaves and they're, they talk about always, it says they went to stop at the rest stop to, to unload the donkeys or to feed the donkeys and all of these things. You know, you find how many times the word chamor shows up in these parashiot, um, and it then becomes a kind of a, a, a an opening to think about that that methodology. I forget who it was who said it, which was thinking about the donkey stories, which is there are always new ways to read a story if you focus on other more minor aspects or minor characters if they're meaningful to you for some reason. So finding yourself in the narrative, finding yourself in the story or looking for stories where there is an unusual character, minority character, you know, oftentimes in, in biblical stories or rabbinic stories, it's going to be a woman or a non-Jew or someone who, you know, of all sorts of interest, you know, people who are obviously of great relevance to society, but for, because of the biases of the target audience and the authors, especially for rabbinic stories, obviously uh, there is more of a sense that, hunting for those rare occurrences of rare types of characters. Hmm. Right. Especially here because they don't do anything. Right. They don't do anything. Right. Exactly. It's like becomes this cryptic. uh, Like you could take it out and nothing would matter. Yes. So I'm still trying to find out what's important about these donkeys because they get mentioned so Hmm. many times. Right. It just brings a smile to my face to think it's like almost humorous, but maybe that's just part of the story. It becomes like a little joke in the story. Not sure. Right. Huh. Well, that's definitely something to think about. Um, so thank you, Dan, so much for coming on. Thank you, Sam. Thank uh, you for asking me. And, and for people listening, uh, pay attention to next episodes of In the Pacha. Subscribe and review it. 
Have a good night and happy Hanukkah. Thank you again.